to the Mint's podcast series, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth-Oriented Companies. My name is Steve Osborne. I'm a partner in our Silicon Valley office at Mint's. My practice is focused on helping companies grow, fund, and exit. Thank you for joining us for our session on employment law. Today, we're going to walk through the life cycle of how you think about hiring an executive, how you can manage that executive at the board level, and how you might terminate or move on from that executive if there's conflict. We're going to touch on some issues that will be helpful for both private companies and public companies. And joining me today, of course, is Melanie Levy, who's a capital markets partner in our San Diego office. And we have a special guest today on the podcast, and that's Jen Rubin. Jen's also in our San Diego office, but is a bi-coastal employment lawyer, having practiced both in New York and in California, and is also the chair of our ESG practice group. Melanie, how are you today? I'm great, Steve. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. And I'm so glad to get to speak with Jen today, too. So thank you both for having me. Jen, welcome to the pod, as they say in podcasting world. Well, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. That's great. All right. So let's kick it off. So um, if we're thinking about bringing on a key executive to a business and the board is meeting to discuss that, how are they thinking about that, Jen? Well, the first thing they should be thinking about is consensus, right? And and it's consensus as to what executive do we need? Why do we need that executive? And then, of course, how are we going to pay that executive? Um, all of those things go into recruiting the right person for the job. And it takes a lot more work than I think a lot of people realize. But it's consensus. You need to make sure that you have spoken to each board member and ask each board member and, and speak to each other about, what are we looking for? Why do we need this type of executive? What is the background? What are the skills? How do we go about recruiting this person? And then to sit down and really look at the candidates that are sourced and decide who is the right person for the job? How much are we going to pay that person? All of those things requires a tremendous amount of board discussion. And by the way, a lot of work, a lot of work really goes into that process as it should. You know, do do a lot of companies will hire a executive recruiting firm to help them, right, on an important search like this. How does that person fit into the board and working with the board? You know, a recruiter, I think for some reason, I don't know why, you know, you use the word recruiter and they have a bad name. I think uh, the right recruiter who has the right background can really provide a tremendous amount of value to the board in not only setting forth appropriate candidates, but helping to define what the board really needs in, in terms of a candidate and clearly with respect to compensation as well. So hiring a really skilled recruiter can be a very, very helpful resource for the board. And that recruiter can also help with that word consensus that I keep coming back with. So having somebody who's really capable in the field in which the particular company is directed specifically can be a real value add. And Melanie, how about when it comes to public companies, is there something to be thinking about in terms of evaluating and hiring an executive and how that may overlay with your disclosure requirements? Well, yes. So it, I would say the background check process, just typically what you would have is once you reach a phase where you have a serious candidate, most of the time as a public company, you would always run a background check. Private companies, I, I believe probably most fairly advanced private companies do that anyway, as a matter of course. But generally, your auditor will want this person to be vetted. They'll want them to do a questionnaire. And we talked about this in other podcasts. If you're going to have this person serve on a board, that questionnaire needs to ask questions about the relationship they may have had with the company. Are there any conflicts of interest and things of that nature that might affect your disclosure requirements? 
The other thing to remember, and this is where people can sort of get tripped up, is to just also remember that if you're a public company and you're recruiting for your chief executive officer, your chief financial officer, and then depending on your size, either the next most highly paid or the, the two, three most highly paid or five most highly paid, it depends on your size, the compensation arrangements and employment arrangements for those individuals are reportable. So every time you file your proxy statement, whatever you agree to pay this employee or their bio and and this information is going to end up in the proxy statement for your shareholders for your annual meeting at which the shareholders will vote also to um, whether they think the director should continue in office. Um, that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is, again, it, it, and, you know, there's a what we call a current report. I won't bore you with it, but it's called a Form 8K. It means you have to make the report within typically four business days of an event. And typically when you would hire a senior executive, particularly chief financial officer, chief accounting officer, chief operations officer, you'd want to talk to your attorney. But oftentimes when you're hiring that executive, you may also trigger that four-day requirement. So you want to make sure that as you're coordinating all of this and you're nearing the end of the interview process, that you've thought about things like publicity, press release, what is this person's bio? Do we all agree what all of this should look like so that their official hire date doesn't cause you to have to cram all of that unnecessarily into four days when perhaps you'd like to have a little bit more time to massage that disclosure? That's really helpful. I was talking to one of our colleagues the other day about a company that was run by a founder and we were bringing in a president to, to really support sort of the business side of it, public company. And that background check didn't get done properly. And four or five months in, probably at the behest of the auditors, uh, the background check was done or was looked at more more carefully. And this person had been an industry leader for many years and had had issues on his resume that were, you know, fabricated at the beginning of his career and had never really been checked properly. And of course, what happened is that that we we terminated that person and. Uh, that's a very disruptive situation because we had brought them in to bring in systems and things that we didn't have already in the business that really to take it to the next level. And, he, and after five months, the person was out. So, uh, and, you know, it was very damaging to the business. Yeah. And, and one thing to think about, too, is, is, you know, and I think for the most part, I will say the people that my clients recruit obviously are well upstanding people. I you know, I want to be very clear. You know, I they're good people. Very few issues, you know, normally arise. But you do have to do the background check because another thing to remember, and you know this, Steve, from private offerings, is if you have a director or an executive officer that's committed certain securities violations, had certain things that they've done, it can really impair a company's ability to raise capital because it can limit their ability to be able to use certain securities exemptions or or things like that. So you always just want to be careful. And if I can pipe in on that point, um, this is both for private and public companies. When you're vetting a candidate, this is another area where a recruiter can be helpful because they can help with the background check process. But if you're going to go ahead and do a background check, make sure you use a legitimate provider, number one. Number two, make sure the appropriate consent forms are provided to the candidate because there are several laws that govern when and how those checks can be done and what will happen with the information. So that's something else to keep in mind. That's great. Now, okay, so we've got our executive on board and now the board is is responsible for, let's say with a CEO, responsible for managing that person. 
And how does that play into how the board should be thinking about this? And, and what tools can the board use to help with managing the executive? Jen? Yeah, so structurally, of course, the, it, let's just use the CEO as, as the example. The CEO reports to the board. And if you think about it, and I know m- most people don't think about it this way, but this is absolutely the right way to think about it. The board is the supervisor. You know, the board is the CEO's boss. And and what makes that complicated? Because you may have, whether you have a five-member board or seven or even a nine or larger board, how do you manage one person when you have all these people who may have various views about what are the elements of performance that are important to that person? And again, I keep coming back to consensus. So typically you would have, whether it's the chair of the board, whether it might be the chair of the compensation committee of the board, but you would typically designate one board member to kind of take on that responsibility for the management of the CEO. You don't want to have a situation where you have five different board members chiming in about do this, do that. This is what we want to have uh, you accomplish. And then, you know, three other people say, no, that doesn't really make sense. So if you think about it, having one boss speak with one voice is the most effective way to manage that that CEO. And, and again, that takes a lot of planning. That takes sitting in the room and, and having conversations about what's important from a strategy perspective for the strategic direction of, of the company. And um, that is the way to do it under the circumstances. So you have that one individual, generally speaking, who's communicating with that executive about what's required. And a lot of times, this is where you can make really good use of your executive sessions, where you will excuse members of management and then the members of the board who are not employees of the company have an opportunity to speak candidly and frankly. And where we see a lot of times sitting in the boardrooms in board meetings is once you go into executive session, there's always sort of an apprehension as a CEO to leave the room. And you'll notice that people are just apprehensive because they know, and it is expected that you are going to talk about what you've seen at the board meeting and how management, including the CEO, is performing. But that is an important function of the board, to your point, Jen. And just as a process matter, being able to do it sort of in the code of silence of the executive session is important. And then designating one person to clearly communicate. And oftentimes, I have one client where they will tell the chairperson of the board, this is what we think we are going to communicate. The chairperson will then repeat it back and say just, and it sounds silly, but it, it sounds silly, but it is just as a process to say, okay, this is what I hear. And then these are the points you want me to hit. And then sometimes they'll bring the person back in after executive session and talk to the CEO directly, or other times they just leave it to the one person designated to connect and convey that message and continue that open line of communication, which is so, so important for a board to have with its chief executive officer. That That's a really interesting point because it raises another thing that I think people don't really think about. I'm sure executives and certainly CEOs think about a little different with a public company and a private company, but you, you kind of lose that right to privacy, right? So you think about it, right? As an employee, you know, your employer can't take information about you right? And share it with the world. That, that's kind of a general proposition. I realize we have 50 states and 50 different ways to manage privacy laws. Uh, but, but as a general proposition, if you are a CEO of a public company, you mentioned previously the 8K you know, on changes. Of course, you have to file the, the employment agreement as an 8K. That's a material change, right? But, but if anything relating to your compensation, of course, in the proxy, it's all disclosed what your equity interest is. There's just no 
privacy in terms of your employment and how you're doing as a CEO. Now, with a with a private company, I think there's more so, right? Because generally speaking, there's no reporting component out of the board itself, right? Uh, as a general proposition. So it, it's a really interesting point that I think people don't think about when they're having these discussions and thinking about outcomes or incomes, right? What are you doing with respect to the executive and, and how much of that gets shared with the outside world? Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting point because it is jarring. I mean, to think about it as a public company CEO, I mean, your neighbor would find out exactly how much you make and what your compensation is. And and there's definitely, you know, to your point, there's a lot of desire for transparency. And you probably talk about this a lot with ESG. <laughs> there's a right. real, you know, we want to talk about not only how we compensate our executives, but how does that go down to other other parts of our rank and file employees and other things? And how do we describe our human capital? All of that goes kind of into a separate discussion, but, but all very public and things yes. that you want to be able to tell a story about. And so when you're doing a public company recruitment, you think about what's the public story that yes. I'm going to tell about this. And just my advice is don't try to cram it into four days. You can make it work, but it's an unpleasant process. Right. And then on the public company point, you know, more to the point, it's not just the publishing the compensation information, whether it's the proxy, the 8K, whatever it may be. It's the, well, you're, you're out there for there to be, you know, ISS or whatever uh, shareholder groups there are to kind of band together to make points <laughs> about yes. not only your performance, but your compensation, right? Yeah. It's it's very interesting. Some of my um, public company CEOs, if they go on to like Reddit or something like that, they will see their picture put into a meme or, you know, and it's just <laughs> like you've kind of given yourself over a little bit for public consumption, unfortunately. Yes. So, um, but it's kind of interesting, the things you'll see on Reddit by typing in a stack symbol. On the topic of managing the CEO, you know, often in a private company or a small private company, even a venture-backed company, I, I, I tell the CEO that they should be managing the board members and communicating with them often so that there isn't a situation in the boardroom where they're surprised by something that's being said by a board member. And that one person who is responsible for managing that CEO if the CEO does it right, that person doesn't quite emerge and the CEO can subtly gain a little bit of control over the narrative and, and where the company's going. And I think that has a lot of value in private companies that are growing fast. You know, slowing down through process can sometimes be the killer for the growth. As you mature as a company, you were mentioning that sometimes the chairman of the board becomes the person who is responsible for managing that person. But often in a private growth company, the chairman of the board is also the CEO. So in some of my clients, I think that maybe the largest investor takes on a bigger role, or maybe one of the investors who has more experience on a board will take over that lead role. But I know as, as companies really start to mature, they think about things like lead director. Melanie, is that a concept that you're using in your clients? So yeah, so public companies, it's it's pretty common to have what we would call a lead director or a lead independent director. And you'll actually see in disclosures for proxy statements, one of the requirements is if you have, I guess I would say, co-located your role of CEO and chairperson, you must explain why you did that. And if you have them separate, you must explain why you did that. That's one of the requirements that you must tell your stockholders every year in your proxy statement. So yes, I have seen that. So the role of a lead director is in instances where the board has decided it makes sense for the chairperson to also be the chief executive or an executive of the company. Most 
most commonly the chief executive, a non-employee director or what we've been calling an independent director is appointed and they will serve as the interface from the board to the CEO, really because once you typically are publicly traded or you've reached sort of that inflection point, it's just most efficient to allow those two people to communicate versus having a smaller board that maybe will meet less often and and can you know, talk about things like that. So the lead director, um, and, and that is, that's also disclosed in the proxy statement. So it's not necessarily required when you appoint a lead director to say something like that, but it is in the proxy statement, you would tell people who your lead director was. You also typically would put it on your website as well. So if you go to any public company and you click on the investor relations tab, you'll see these various designations of the director. And if there is a lead director, oftentimes you're able to see who that is. And that's kind of important for investors to know from their perspective, they want to know who on the board, if, if the chairman of the board is the same CEO, who else, how do I get my concerns across? Who's talking, you know, from the board's perspective? Yeah, I think that, I think that's interesting. I, I've seen that concept trickle down into larger late stage private companies mm-hmm. because as companies realize the obligations that come along with going public, some of them are staying private longer, right? And because of that, I think that often we're now seeing bigger boards and more sophisticated companies really operating as private companies. And these ideas that come from the public company world, like lead director, are finding their way into the boardroom at these bigger companies. Jen, the question I get a lot is, how do we determine compensation? Does that come from management and up to the board? Does it come from a compensation committee? Should we have a compensation committee? Maybe you could touch on a couple of best practices in your mind around determining compensation as we're operating a company? Yeah, I I wish there was a single way to answer that question. How about this? Don't pluck numbers out of the air. How about that? (laughs) Let's start. So so compensation should be grounded in uh, the position for which you're hiring. Generally speaking, uh, it may be geographically located. So if you're going to put somebody in San Francisco, you may be paying that executive something different than you'd be paying somebody in Alabama. Although post-COVID, I'm not quite sure whether that will continue to hold true. Uh, The person's experience, uh, prior management experience, educational experience, the skills that they bring to the position, whether they have any specific unique skills, you know, specifically with respect to the particular uh, mission of the company and and that are germane to the mission of the company. So there's no one size fits all answer. There's a lot of uh, companies out there, compensation consultants who could be helpful. There are reports that a company can purchase that will tell the company, here here are my peers. This is what my peer is paying. And, you know, here's the median. Here's the upper end of the range, lower end, divided by both base pay, equity, and, and, and other aspects. So there's certainly data and information out there where you can peg compensation that's going to be the opposite of plucking a number out of the out of the air. The other thing you have to keep in mind if you're you're trying to recruit a particular person, generally speaking, and I'm not going to get into the discussions of salary discussions, and you're not frankly in many states allowed to ask somebody what they're currently making. Not an issue for public company CEOs because you just sit down and pull it up on Edgar. There you go. You know exactly what they're making. But for private company executives, you may not know. And so you need to you need to understand what their expectations are. Now, that's different from asking what they're actually earning, and that's perfectly permissible. So compiling all those things together is going to help you in setting compensation. But there's so many different factors that come into play. There really is no one size fits all answer to that. Yeah. 
And as a public company, to your question, Steve, like if you're traded on NASDAQ or the NYSE, there are requirements that the compensation either be recommended to the board by a compensation committee or be approved by a compensation committee, again, comprised of independent directors. And we, we talked about that a little bit in our, in our committee podcast. So go back and find that session if you haven't listened to the session on committees. It's a great one. It talks about audit committees and other committees, too, including ESG. And I think it was a very valuable uh, session. Okay, one thing that may come up more uh, for us in the in the down cycle, if that's coming in a recession, is is maybe it's time to move on from a CEO. And I know that 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 is a tricky issue uh, for any company, and particularly when things maybe aren't at, going as smoothly as they once were, this can be really challenging. And so I want to make sure we touched on that and helped our CEOs and board members be prepared for those kinds of conversations that might be coming. Jen, give me some thoughts there. Yeah, so um, terminating a CEO is never easy. It's fraught with uh, potential issues uh, that impact not only that CEO, though don't lose sight of that's a person, it's a human um, who's having their career impacted. It impacts the board members who of course are invested in the success of the enterprise and their responsibility as a board member is to make sure that they are providing the appropriate strategic direction of the enterprise. And the employees, keep in mind the employees who who may be bereft when the person is terminated or they may be cheering, <laughs> right? You have everything in between. So I, I go back to that word consensus I used at the outset of the podcast because having a consensus among the board members about what's best for the corporation. And again, you have to remove the personal, right? It's what's best for the company. And coming up with a negotiated, amicable separation is almost always the best way to, to approach it for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is making sure that the mission of the company is not misdirected somehow by, by distractions, by disputes, certainly litigation. You don't ever want it to get to that point. So coming together as a board to figure out the best approach and then sitting down with the executive and hopefully having that executive agree, you know what, I'm going to um, reach agreements with you. I'm going to be cooperative about my departure. I'm going to transition my job gracefully so that the company can move on. And guess what? Again, going back to the executive, I try never to lose sight, and I do represent quite a few executives. That executive is going to have the rest of the executive's career. So make that rest of your career successful and look upon this as a learning component, as something that you're taking away to make you better in your next executive position. So again, consensus, uh, graceful departure, and and something that is cooperative um, and helpful to both the executive and the company, that is the ideal. I think one of the things to remember as a board member too in this situation is Company counsel can be a very good advocate or helpful tool to use to get to that consensus on a board and then to manage that transition with some grace. And, and of course, <laughs> keeping in mind the legal obligations that a company has or the legal pitfalls that might come up here. And I often find that in private company clients, a lot of times the relationship between the CEO and the law firm is pretty tight because they're working together in the trenches day to day. And I, I tell my colleagues who represent private companies that they should create a relationship with the board members, not just with the CEOs, because you want the board members to feel comfortable coming to you. And I think in many ways, the board members have to realize that even though there is some conflicts of interest there where 
you know, some of us who represent these CEOs have done it for multiple companies that we understand that that our job is not to represent that CEO, it's to represent the company and that that lawyers will be professional and can be a really good advocate for also understanding what the needs might be for that CEO on the exit. And so come to the lawyers early in the process as you're trying to build that consensus and build that plan for transition. Yeah, and remember on the conflict point, Steve, the lawyer represents the organization. The institution is the client, even though the CEO is is the leader of the institution. And so even though there may be a, a you know, a conflict, so to speak, it's not an ethical conflict of interest because the lawyer will be representing the organization. And that's the the entity to whom we owe our ethical obligations. So two things that come up for me a lot when we transition a CEO. The first one is, shouldn't we put this person on some kind of consulting contract? That's the first question that sometimes comes up. And the second one is, uh, especially for founder CEOs, is does this person stay on the board? Because they probably have maybe even a right to stay on the board or maybe the right to elect somebody to the board via their common stock. So maybe let's take the second one first, Melanie, and and give me your thoughts on this, you know, sitting on the board as a former CEO conundrum. Yes. So it, it seems almost universally amongst my clients is that when they have transitioned to CEO, they generally do not wish for the CEO to remain on the board. And that that goes back to Jen's point about these are human beings. And, and to have, you know, the former person who had your job as the new CEO to come in and report to that person, well, it, it, it's number one, awkward. And, and number two, perhaps not the most efficient um, setup, just to put it bluntly. But one thing to remember to your point, Steve, terminating someone from their employment and removing them from the board are two different things. And what you're legally going to be able to do depends, as you said, in a private company, especially one that's venture funded, there are voting agreements. You may not have the right to just push someone off the board. Generally, in those voting agreements, you can only remove them for cause. And that's often going to be a matter of dispute. So if there is a person who is not willing to resign from the board, I think to Jen's advice, you know, trying to make it as amicable as possible, they may be on the board at least for some period of time because it is not an automatic removal. They may have a right, a contractual right to sit there or to designate someone to sit there. In a public company, it's similar as well. People are elected typically for one to three year terms. It depends if you have a classified board, but discussion for another day. But you're elected until the next annual meeting um, or until your death, resignation, or removal. I think any corporate lawyer could say those words in their sleep because it's in every board resolution. She shall serve until her death, resignation, or removal. But removal is actually pretty complicated. (laughs) And so you can't just remove people from the board. And so you do have want to have some sort of hopefully conciliatory arrangement. And just to kind of take a step back as a public company, remember there was an 8K or that four-day requirement when you hired this executive. If there was, there's likely that 8K four-day requirement when you remove that executive. And also as a public company, if that executive is also a board member and they are removed, assuming you're able to do that under Delaware law with the circumstances you have, um, if they remove or resign, that triggers an 8K requirement. But one very important thing, and I cannot stress this enough, and it applies when board members resign as well, is there are disclosure requirements in 8K 
where if a board member is resigning as the result of a disagreement, and one can certainly imagine how there could potentially be disagreements if a person is resigning in connection with their termination of employment, those are required to be discussed or disclosed. To the extent there is a writing about that and those disagreements, that is likely to be required to be filed as an exhibit. So I just strongly, strongly urge, encourage people in this scenario or this unfortunate situation to please limit their written communications. As I imagine for many people, the very last thing they would like to see is their email (laughs) attached to the world on a Form 8K. And you could certainly search them and see where this has happened. So really just try to limit things in writing, try to keep it as conciliatory as possible, and just be aware that you may not have the ability to remove someone from a board just because you have terminated their employment. That uh, that might be the best advice so far uh, we've given on this podcast, which is uh, try to keep these things out of writing. And if you, you hear a lawyer <laughs> say that over and over. On that transition piece, you know, one of the things that my clients often ask me about is, if we terminate the CEO, they're going to stop vesting. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe they want to have a vest. Let's put them on a consulting contract. We can have a wind down. We can have the vest. And and Jen, how does that work now under California law or not work as the case may be? Uh, well, you know, AB5, uh, the Uber law, which Uber got itself exempted from, by the way, really kind of put the damper on independent contractor or consulting arrangements. And by the way, they're the same thing for those of you who don't know in, in California. And other states are also getting into the act. So before you enter into a consulting agreement with any existing employee, just make sure you ask your favorite employment lawyer before you get a uh, signature on that agreement. It, it, the reason why a lot of companies like to do this is, first of all, there's the continued vesting, right? If you're trying to be fair to an individual who's been removed from their position, you want to give them that vesting. Maybe it's going to give them to the end of the year to earn a bonus. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons why you might want to give somebody additional time, but at the same time, remove them from their position. So there's a lot of different creative things you could do that don't involve consulting agreements. You could uh, remove somebody or have them resign from the CEO position and, and, you know, appoint them to another position or simply call them a part-time employee. I mean, there's a lot of different things that you can do that are less suspect. And I would suggest looking into those before you enter into a consulting agreement. That's great. I think we've gone through a nice arc of sort of following the executive through that hiring management and potentially termination setting for board members. We like to end our podcast with a question from a client. And and this was less a question, but more a request for information, I would say, around pay equity and transparency laws and where those sit right now and how we should be thinking about those as we apply them to our companies. Jen, I think you've nobody better in our firm probably for this topic. So give us your thoughts on those on the, those topics. Oh, okay. So a uh, big topic, but let me just do this in, in just a brief moment. New York City's pay transparency law goes into effect on November 15. California's pay transparency law that was signed into law uh, a couple of weeks ago goes into effect on January 1. In essence, these laws require employers to publicly post uh, for any position that's advertised. And as you can appreciate, advertisement is a very broad topic. Um, the pay ranges uh, the pay scale for any particular position. The, the purpose of these laws is to create parity so that individuals coming in and interviewing for a position have a much better sense for what type of pay they should be asking for because the pay is transparent. 
similar to the C- the public company CEOs and the other officers whose pay is posted, right? If you know that information, it's much easier to negotiate for either more pay, better pay, better benefits, whatever it may be. So it kind of removes the the putative disadvantage by having that information posted. The main topic on our clients' minds these days are, well, hey, you're telling me this is a California law, or I've got some folks in New York City. And by the way, post-COVID, I now have somebody in Idaho, 18 people in Texas, and 43 people in Minnesota. Now what am I supposed to do, right? That's a whole other topic for another podcast, but I will say this. Trying to come up with a uniform approach is best administratively for your human resources professionals who are responsible for setting pay. It's going to be better for your employees if there's kind of one-size-fits-all policies that apply to all states wherever your uh, positions are located. So instead of trying to be all over the map, literally with these policies, try and come up with a uh, nationwide policy that's going to be sensible for your business. And that takes a lot of hard work, but it can be done. That's great. Thank you so much, Jen. I appreciate the feedback on, on that topic. Thank you to my employment colleague, Jen Rubin. And as always, thank you to Melanie Levy. And thank you to the audience for joining us on the Mint's podcast series, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth-Oriented Companies.